Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we have freelance writer Fraser Brown. Hello. And today, Fraser and I are going to be talking about Stoic Studios' Banner Saga 2, uh, the follow-up to, I think, you know, one of my favorite games uh, from, from the last year or so, uh, for, for all my reservations about it as a strategy game. Uh, Fraser, I, I think you had a few more issues with, uh, with the original Banner Saga, but, uh, you know, let's, let's dive into Banner Saga 2 here. Uh, you, know, you know, first, continuing from, from Banner Saga 1, um, you know what? What? Where did you? Where did you land with that game? And how does Banner Saga Two go about addressing or not addressing some of these reservations that that we had about the game? Uh, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was exactly what a sequel needs to do, which is it built on the foundations of the first game and improved a lot of the issues that I had with it as well. There were certain mechanics that I think, while not ruining the game by any means, definitely made it a little bit frustrating, certainly in the um, the caravan part of the game, where you're not fighting the tactical battles, but actually managing your group of survivors. There's like a renowned mechanic and a food mechanic that started off quite interestingly, but kind of devolved into a bit of a mess by the end of the game and actually just ended up being kind of annoying and getting in the way of things. Um, that isn't the case in Banner Saga 2. And a lot of the changes are really quite small, but they have this massive impact. Um, and they are in both the, the tactical combat aspect and the, the running of your, your two groups of struggling survivors. Um, but what I love is about it as a sequel is that it really feels like a direct continuation. There is no messing about. You really do dive into that game with, if you've imported your save from the first game, and if anyone's thinking of playing the Banner Saga 2, you need to play the first game because the second will make no sense if you don't. Um, you, the, the big decisions carry over, and it really feels like you've, you're not playing two games. You're playing one that you've had a break for maybe two years. Um, for instance, if you decided to let someone die in a Banner Saga 1, even if it's like the main character, you will be playing or not playing them in Banner Saga 2. All the people that you recruited and their skills and the items they carry are all carried over as well. So they're more powerful. So the very first tactical battles you get into in Banner Saga 2 are kind of as intense as the tactical battles by the end of Banner Saga 1. Yeah. They're, like, tricky and interesting. Uh, like, how did you find the battles? Do you think it was a big improvement? Oh, man. Uh, so my feelings there are a little complicated, uh, but I do want to sort of uh, go, go on with what you, what you said there, uh, which is it definitely felt like I was picking up the exact same party, like, two years later or whatever. So I finished, actually, I played through the game, like, six months ago so but it, but it felt like it had been a break but i still remembered like oh yeah i had all these people and all those items and so i like on the one hand it was kind of cool like i was able to get right back to sort of the the same strategies and stuff that had seen me pretty well in banner saga one but it definitely also felt like oh man the stakes are still as high as they were by the end of that first game the first game you know your first encounters with the uh with the dread sort of the the walking uh you know uh, they sound almost mechanical. Uh, but yeah, they're, like they're the, kind the of stone suits of golem armor. Yeah, golem. armor things. They're very yeah. peculiar. Uh, you know, in the first game, you sort of got to warm up against them, and the first encounters were pretty manageable. Uh, here, very quickly after like the first introductory encounter, you're right back to sort of being outnumbered, outgunned, having to really uh, chew over your moves. Uh, but what I will say is that... So Banner Saga has a very interesting combat system uh, that plays very differently from a lot of other tactical RPGs. I'm still not entirely sure it works as well as the novelty of it would imply almost. Um so if you haven't played the, the Banner Saga, I think the, the 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 main quirk in the Banner Saga is that it's always I go, you go, I go, you go. But the difference is that 
it will cycle through each side's entire force uh, in that pattern. So you move character, the AI moves character. Since you're outnumbered, what that usually means is that the larger force actually labors under a liability, which is that its units get to move far less frequently uh, than the smaller force, usually the player's forces. So it's in your interest, actually, to leave enemies alive but weakened and just sort of keep whittling them down until you can sort of cull them all uh, toward the end. Now, where this gets tricky is the, the board isn't that big, uh, so space to maneuver can get a little tricky. Um, your own units are being whittled down uh, as you sort of execute the strategy. But I still felt in the Banner Saga 2, and I think the game almost exacerbates this to an extent, that that ability to sort of take advantage of the turn order against larger forces, re like once you've made that, once you've like internalized that system and how it works, it makes it really easy to sort of cheese your way through a lot of encounters. And the Banner Saga 2, part of that stakes raising, I felt was um, there were a lot of battles where you're heavily outnumbered and it looks very impressive, you know, the both from a narrative standpoint and just like the, the art on the battlefield uh, during the fight really drives home that like, oh man, these guys just keep coming. But what that translates to on the tactical level is, oh boy, another guy just entered the fight, which means they're really powerful units will get to move even less often and I'm going to continue sort of rolling around here and uh, and, and sort of cutting them down. So I, I, I felt like um, I, I felt like the the, the the game was improved overall. The battles themselves, I felt like it kind of walked into some of the um, traps the original game uh, fell into as well, just by just by virtue of the structure of those turns. See, I kind of feel that you need that advantage sometimes uh, because the dread i mean you obviously you're not just fighting the dread though they are the most uh, numerous uh, of all the enemies um some of the big ones the giant mace wielding ones are devastating and can kill one of your uh clansmen or varl in like two hits uh if, if they get lucky um so I do feel having these little advantages really does help. Um, although I think you are you are correct in that it does go a bit far when you've got, especially when in certain battles where, because each battle is more like a scenario. Uh, mm -hmm. there, you're not even just trying to kill all of your enemies. Sometimes it might be killing a specific enemy. Sometimes it might be just surviving for as long as possible. Um, when you get new ones coming in, and yet you're still alternating turns, I did almost feel sympathetic toward the dredge. They're just yeah. waiting there, being like, when am I going to get my bloody turn and kill this Viking-looking dude? But I think I kind of forgive it that, because there are so many additional improvements that they've lavished on the tactical battles. Um, I don't know about you, but one of my problems with the tactical battles by the end of the Banner Saga 1 was that they are all kind of the same. It's usually the same enemies, the dredge, and the scenarios are all just like, kill everyone. Whereas there's a greater amount of diversity in its sequel. Um, you're fighting against like horse lords, which are these badass centaur dudes. Uh, other clansmen you're fighting these like marsh dwelling savages and a, a greater variety of dredge as well and they have extra tricks up their sleeves like these little weird creatures that can scale across the ground and breathe fire on you so it doesn't feel like you're going into a battle and thinking well i know exactly what i'm going to do and how this is going to turn out uh, things can change quite rapidly, like the introduction of a new uh, enemy, like either at the start of the battle or midway through, um, or a specific challenge that you've got to overcome rather than just slaughter everyone and call it a day. I definitely feel that the introduction of uh, some scenario, like uh, of a feeling that 
a lot of these encounters felt more like bespoke scenarios uh, yeah. was was really important. Like early on, there's sort of a battle where uh, it kind of introduces the idea that like the dredge have certain officers or leaders uh and there's one battle where you have to like take out the 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 captain of the dredge and uh the enemy will just keep swarming in uh until you until you knock out this leader uh so that sort of changes what you're supposed to do do in the battle uh in that same battle um it introduces one of the new uh enemies which i don't know like i felt there like i, I guess like I guess, how did you feel about some of these new units? Because like, you know, I I started to get a little little bit of a sinking feeling with uh, the introduction of like the first new like dredge unit, which is kind of this bug creature that like turns invisible and sort of strikes in the shadows. It was more of a nuisance enemy. Uh, very... It's an obstacle, really, isn't it? It it almost like adds more terrain, invisible terrain to yeah. the map. Like you don't want to step there. I liked it. Because I actually felt it forced me to pay attention to the movements um, of my enemies more. I had to remember where they had gone before I moved my troops, which in turn just made me pay attention overall in every battle. Um, and I think it's it's like a sort of a teaching technique, really. It is like watch where everyone's moving. Yeah, sure, these guys are invisible, so it's even more important. But just generally maintaining an awareness of the battlefield is super important and i think that inspires you to do that more often yeah um overall did you feel like the new units added uh much more variety to the uh to the battles than than we had in the first game because uh, you know in the first game it was it was really a a very simple slate of enemies you faced right it was sort yeah. of basic melee guys heavy melee guys and then throwers and there are little like variations within that, but by and large, like it stuck to that pattern pretty religiously, and worked pretty well for that. But it also f- started to feel a little samey uh, after a point. Did yeah, I think feel it like needed enough- the it needed the variety, and there, I, I think they could have had more. There could always be more, I guess. But um, I never felt like I was getting sick off the enemies I was fighting. Um, and the new ones that they bring in, like uh, the Horse Lords, for instance, um, they're in a very specific area. Same with the, the Marsh people. Uh, so it doesn't feel like you're constantly fighting them. It's part of your journey. So you're moving across this kind of Norse-inspired landscape and fighting the natives of these areas that you're passing through. And in a lot of cases, well, other than the Dredge, a lot of these potential enemies can also become friends. You can get horse lords. Uh, in is it horse lords or is it horse born? I think I can't remember. Horse, horse lords is yeah. Horse lords is CK2. Rohan and uh, also CK two. Yeah. Um, so the, the horse born are have all their kind of special moves that are retained. So when you recruit them, you get access to this new arsenal, basically, and. It makes fights a lot more fun because you're not just fighting new enemies, you're working with new mechanics yourself when you're actually deploying them in the battlefield. And they are badass as well. Uh, and, it, and it all translates to this kind of merging of tactical combat and the narrative because your army progresses and gets more developed and more diverse as you pr- go through your journey. Yeah, I, you know, this journey you're on, uh, so the ba- the Banner Saga is a journey story, right? Like, it's always yeah. a, uh, it, it's it's always in, in the service of this narrative of a group of survivors uh, moving from place to place. Um, a lot changes in with the way that journey is conveyed and like sort of the places you're going in the banner saga too, which I found actually really exciting. Um, so banner saga one is very much a sort of a, a, a sort of flight through a traditional Norse society, fantasy Norse society, right? Is, is sort of how it feels. You, you, you've got two caravans, but both are largely moving through this, this sort of Norse countryside, uh, as as this this endless uh, sort of army of uh, dredge begin to pour across the earth and, and wipe everything out, um, 
but every everywhere you go feels very sort of familiar like it's it's re- all recognizable as being part of the same world these characters are from right it's it's sort of their home territory uh here i i found that um Banner Saga 2 feels much more like a journey into strange like parts unknown uh which was which was really cool plus you also have a very different vibe in the story around uh one of the caravans uh so like in the in the first game you had two caravans one was a group of villagers fleeing from uh the onslaught on the countryside and the other was sort of this royal uh party that's caught up in the middle of this war uh here i i i really dug the way it's split in this game uh which is that early on this character, this this sort of pain in the ass character from the first game, this mercenary leader, uh, who's always been—I think it's fair to say—I was always more annoyed by this guy than anything. Like, there's so many people who are pain in the ass to you in that first game. The, this guy's <laughs> appearance at the end—he just seems like your your classic sort of sullen uh, frenemy, right? Where where he, yeah. everything you do is wrong. He's always he's always you know vetching about something. He's always he's always threatening to like kill and betray you, but never actually does. And I was like, ah, just to hell with this guy. <laughs> and the first game picks the second game picks up from that same place. He's still kind of an obnoxious member of your party, kind of mutinous. Um, and then he sort of splits off, and then you are this guy. And the, uh, it felt to me like it suddenly it felt like I had two very different caravans that were under my control facing a very different uh, moral landscape. So I was like, on the one hand, I was controlling Rook uh, since he was the character who survived from the first game. And I was still very much handling that caravan as like the, they're, you're, they're the good guys, right? It's the, it's the giant refugee caravan trying to save everyone that can possibly be saved uh, in, this, in this world gone hell. Uh, and he's kind other, of like the caravan's dad, basically. Yeah, yeah very much so. Um, it is. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of surrogate dads in that caravan. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a very dad caravan. Uh, the second one is led by this uh, by this Varl, this uh, giant uh, mercenary uh, named Bolverk, and it felt like a slightly darker hued story. It felt like I didn't get the same sort of. Um, it was a more morally confusing journey, is the way I'd put it. Uh, and and they, I think they did a very good job, both in terms of the writing style around the narrative around Bolverick and also the choices that are given to you, of sort of making you adopt the same perspective as this, this band of unruly mercenaries, I, which I thought was actually kind of a cool thing. Like, immediately it sort of felt like I had to get into a different headspace because, like, it just wasn't... I didn't have the wherewithal... Uh, to be to to run the same sort of uh, path through the story that I was with like Rook. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because you do have a lot of different options with both Rook and Bolverk. Like you can play Bolverk as like a pretty reasonable nice guy, but it never feels like that makes sense all the time. Like you kind of want to be an asshole, and it's not even asshole. He's just very aggressive, and he's on a quest. And it's like a very different quest from Rook, because Rook's doesn't feel like a quest. He's trying to keep this caravan alive, whereas Bulwark, he's got mercenaries. He's trying to make coin. He's actually on a job when he skedaddles and leaves leaves Rook behind, taking with him some of Rook's men as well um, that were also in the first game. But he's on a quest, and he's just doing it for the cash at first, but then becomes intimately involved with this the mystical goings-on surrounding the dredge and all this weird stuff about resurrection. Um, I actually think it's the more interesting of the two storylines. I mean, they're all intertwined, but uh, less so than the first one, I felt. But this was definitely, uh, the Bolverick storyline was my, my favourite. But yes, I also felt like uh, Bolverick immediately starts going into the more um, a heart of darkness direction in some yes. ways, where you're just journeying deeper into a weird world that isn't the one you're from. Uh, Sometimes literally deeper as well, which yeah. is really cool. We're getting to explore new places, uh, which is quite exciting. Yeah, um, and also I think it solves a really crucial problem, which is that, um, so in the first game, the two caravans had very similar slates of characters, uh, like class types and everything. So once the parties were merged, you almost had like 
an entire redundant party that you didn't really need. Um, and so the, that sort of carried on in the second game where, like, I had, you know, sort of, it's sort of like a sports game, right? Like, I had my starting, my starting five, <laughs> my starting six. Uh, and occasionally one of them was hurt and I'd have to rotate someone in. But by and large, like, I had my team and I stuck to them. And uh, with once the parties were split, it once again forced me to start mixing up who was going into combat every turn, especially with Bulverk's party again. Bulverk takes with him a weird cast of characters, a lot of new unit types, uh, or unit types maybe you just haven't used all that much. Uh, so Bulverk's party ends up like playing very differently from Rook's and also forces me to sort of find different ways of playing this game, uh, which, was, which was really smart, really well done. Um, and and really exciting because like I always felt like this this was a game with maybe more options than I knew what to do with, uh, and I think this this game sort of solves that issue. Yeah, because they've got um, he takes with him a huge chunk of Varl and clansmen, and I think that Bulwark's group are definitely the more aggressive uh, out of the two. Whereas Rook gets maybe some more exotic units. You've got your your kind of magic dudes, and then some of the people that they, he meets along the way, uh, like the Horseborn, which are, are very different from from the rest of the the units. So each battle with each kind of battle that they have separately feels distinct. It doesn't feel like you're you're playing as Rook, you're fighting a couple of battles, and then you switch to Bulwark, and you're largely playing the same way. You do have to keep switching which is an interesting challenge and wrinkle in itself because you kind of get into the mindset of playing with rook's cast of characters and then quickly you've got to remember who are the important people in bulwark's group uh, one thing i did think and this is a symptom of being a sequel that's so connected to the first game is that and, and this kind of changed over time but maybe for the first couple of hours i was quite baffled by the units because I didn't know who they were or mm -hmm. why I had chosen uh, to give them these items or level them up in this way. And that made it really confusing when I was trying to pick a group of people to fight with because I'm like, does this guy suck? <laughs> I just I didn't remember them. And, and that kind of is also a, a narrative problem as well because there are so many characters now. And a lot of characters that played quite a large role in the first game will get maybe two small scenes, if that, in the second. Yeah. And if 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 you're like me and you you had like a two-year gap, when someone dies and it's clear they're meant to be important, everyone's like, oh, god damn, this is my best friend or my lover. <laughs> I'm like, who the hell is this guy? Why should I give a shit? But then thinking back, I'm like, oh, no, he was like really important. <laughs> and I think that that's probably... Not as a big an issue for you, maybe, because you only had a six-month camp. I mean, how did you find it? Uh, I found it actually... Like, I didn't have as, as much of a uh, who-are-you-again reaction <laughs> as, as you did, obviously. But I did think, like, it starts to show a little bit of creakiness because, yeah, there's there's a lot of characters in this game now. The other problem is some of them really aren't necessarily supposed to be there. Uh, like... Uh, perfect example it's a very mild mild spoiler uh there's a character early in the first game uh gunulf who is this uh this this varl warhawk which basically means he's this uh like whirling dervish kind of guy uh but he's sort of your your strong silent type and there's a choice early in banner saga one that i think unless you specifically know that what the trap that character is probably going to die tragically Second time I played through it, I, I sidestepped that trap. Uh, so Gunolf is still around, and he's still available to select for my party and all of that. Does not have a scene, basically. <laughs> basically you know what I mean? Like, he's this, he's this ghost presence in the game, a like, huge part of my battle line. Like, he's going through there just, like, kicking ass right and left. As far as the game is concerned, he's narrative optional uh, and, and actually probably gone from the narrative. 
for most people. So there's not much invested in him. Uh, so I, I think there is a bit of a problem where like, as this series goes on, you're getting more and more characters who may or may not be there, which means their contribution to the story changes, um, which also makes it feel a little bit like, I don't know, like, you know, like, like there's, I think in Gunolf's case, like, it's almost like there's a missing payoff, right? Because, like, Gunolf was supposed to die. I kept him alive because I wanted to see, like, I didn't want to lose that character. Um, I'd invested renown in him, uh, which is another big problem the first game had. That I, You know, I didn't feel the second one was causing me as many problems with that, and we'll get to that in a second. But the first game, a lot of characters, you'd invest this, this precious uh, resource, uh, non-renewable resource. Uh, characters could just die. Uh, and take with them the renown you'd invested in leveling them up. And that was really devastating. So I didn't want Gunolf to die. Uh, but narratively, he probably should be. And now he just sort of, like, is there. And it's cool to have him as a resource in battle. But story-wise, he's kind of a dead end. There's, there's, there's not much going on with him. Um, I think, in, you know, getting beyond the narrative side of this, though... I think there's another issue, which is I feel like Banner Saga's I'm trying to trying to avoid Banner Saga's Iron Man uh identity, right? Where there's 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 no take backs. Um fights have real consequences, characters will will die, uh mistakes are kind of irrevocable. Uh on the one hand that makes makes it very cool and makes these adventures really memorable and feel really high stakes. Uh on the other hand, in a game where you're introducing a lot of new character types and new abilities and shit. Um I found that had a bit of a chilling effect on my willingness to really experiment and play around with the new units. Like, I'm gonna like if this fight seems important, I'm gonna put my put my A team in. You know what I mean? Right. I'm not gonna yeah. try like I don't know. Like this guy's a poet. What is like? What does a <laughs> poet do here? I don't really. I don't really know. Maybe he's cool, but I'm a little worried about how this fight's gonna go. So I'm gonna go with the guy with a big ass sword. And that's going to be my solution. <laughs> and I sort of felt like I was sort of fighting against that. And some of the new units are immediately, like, useful. Like, um, Falca is Bolverk's, like, uh, right-hand woman. Um, but she also has an incredibly powerful, um, like, aura power that allows her to uh, really make your party a lot tankier, uh, if you use her correctly. So immediately, she's super useful. Uh Another character, um, God, the, I, I forget the dude's name, the old dude in Bulwark's party. The Wanderer. Oh, the, the Scald guy? Um, he's an old man. Uh, yeah, isn't he called like Scaldy or something like something, that? Yeah. Scaldy the Scald. <laughs> uh, but, but my issue with him was like I just didn't fully know what to do with him at first. And he ended up just being like, I realized later like his ability to change the um, initiative order a little bit could be hugely yeah. powerful at the right moments and he had a decent enough um like attack that he was pretty useful but nevertheless like this game throws a lot of new unit types into the mix and then because it's sort of an iron man game every battle is kind of a live fire exercise right so it's well, like, here's this they, new guy they don't die if they fall in battle though they are they have an injury and they need yes. food and stuff like that. I mean, so that means they might not be able to fight in the next battle or the battle after that. But the, what I actually quite appreciate, and I'm I'm completely cool with, with permadeath games where the permadeath is happening while you're fighting, but I appreciate that the Banner Saga makes it always death. This, it's a narrative thing. It's part of the story. It's not part of the fight. So if you cock up a battle, yeah, you, you, you will be worse off. But you won't suddenly just lose your favorite fighter. Um, you might if you go down a certain story route, though. But then there's almost like a payoff because it's part of the story. There's a reaction to it rather than just them falling in a separate part of the game. Yeah, I do appreciate that um, Banner Side is usually really good about being like, okay, this fight's for real. Mm -hmm. Like this one, like this one, anyone goes down here, they're done. Um, but I, I I don't know I just I, I I tend to feel like 
injured characters are such a liability in battle that yeah. I was always thinking about like, oh, if there's another encounter in a day or so before that character heals, if this battle goes wrong, then I'll be in real trouble. So I don't know. It's just, um, it dissuaded me from, from taking a lot of risks. Uh, but I, but I want to talk about the sort of journey structure of the game, but also the way they've changed the economy. Cause I thought it was a really good idea gone horribly, horribly wrong in the first game. Mm-hmm. And in the second game, they haven't changed all that much. Like it's still kind of a one resource economy, yeah, but it's a, they've tweaked it just a tiny bit. And it's for me, it like kind of seemed to address most of my issues. How did you find it? Yeah. Uh, it's really weird because I could barely pinpoint what they changed, but the actual flow of the journey. So it doesn't feel like a boring resource management escapade anymore. Um, Instead, so basically you've got these two resources. You've got like renown, well, I guess three as well. You've got morale. uh, And maybe if you include the actual like clansmen and the refugees, you've, so maybe you've got quite a few resources, I guess. Um, But basically these can be whittled down over time through decisions that you make. So you can lose clansmen and warriors and all these other things. If you say um, you're on, on, on some boats going down a river and you decide to stop for some reason, maybe you see some refugees and you're like, stop, we'll go and help these people. But it's a trap, and there are bandits or something, and they kill like 20 of your uh, clansmen. And that is pretty depressing, because you're like, well, I'm trying to do this lovely thing, and I've just been screwed over. But that's really what the Banner Saga 2 is all about, trying to do the right, uh, make the right call and being punished for it. Um, but more importantly, there is uh, kind of food and renown, which basically affects how you how often you can level up a character, um, and also the morale of your group, which affects how they are going into battle. But I feel like I wasn't having to pay attention to it nearly as much as in the first game, where I started just to become quite obsessed with it, and it got in the way of the story. And all you need to do is make a few mistakes early on, maybe push your caravan just a little bit too hard a couple of times. And by the end of the game, in in the first game, you would have like no renown, no food, and going into the final battle, you would be in this really difficult position, not because of a lack of skill, but really because of just random misfortune. And I feel that there's a little bit less of that. You you kind of have a better... Ha- I think it helps that, having played it before, I had a better handle of how the actual system worked. But it allowed me to just enjoy the journey. That's not to say that it isn't still very tense. There are moments where, say, I've, I've just had a battle and I've got injured... Uh, injured members of my party, and they're they're heavy hitters, so I want them to be in the next battle, or I might be in trouble. So I decide to like make camp. Well, that means we're not progressing, we're not moving, and we're using up food. Uh, so it's there's a sort of payoff. I'm worried: are we going to run out of food? Are we going to get to the next town where I can spend renown to buy more food and survive the next leg of the journey? Um, so trying to save these these warriors to bring them into the next battle might screw over everything. So there's still that that tension, but I just didn't feel like I was playing a resource management game. I felt like I was just playing through this epic journey. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like the decision to make clansmen, basically civilians, generate food. At yeah, they can go picking food and rate. gathering. It's brilliant. Yeah, because, like, the first game, the economy completely broke down. Um, By the end, like, once you figured out, like, okay, if my party, if my caravan starves, it doesn't really hurt me. Like, I have low morale in battle, which limits uh, how much willpower, basically, um, like, willpower kind of translates into either bonus movement or bonus damage or the ability to trigger your your character's specials. Um, If you have low morale, you have less, you have reduced willpower. 
uh, which is bad, but as you kill enemies, willpower fills up anyway, so it's not a huge deal. And in the meantime, if you've leveled all these characters by spending that renown on characters rather than supplies, um, your characters were stronger, so it was easier to fight those battles. And since the end of the game is just one huge, like one battle after another, I sort of hit a point, you know, with the Banner Saga one where I just stopped like dealing with half the economy and was just pouring everything into my characters. Here, uh, yeah, you've got the ability to sort of tweak the composition of your caravan to make it a little more self-sustaining in terms of food. Um, also, I don't know, it just felt like maybe it was slightly more generous with Renown. Oh, it definitely was. Like, it wasn't just slightly more generous. It was a lot more generous. I felt like after every battle, I was like, right. Time to level these guys up, which is good, though, because you've got such... I think that's why it is. It's because you have these two massive groups. You need the Renown, or you're not going to get any sort of character growth. Um, so I, I felt that it was generous, but at the same time, in this kind of logical way, I didn't feel like I was making characters too overpowered. No, and it still leaves you with tough choices, because like, you <laughs> can level some characters, but maybe not all of them. Um and now there's enough renown to go around that maybe it is worth it to buy food this time around. Uh, yeah. You know, you uh, actually, there's a lot of characters who are really willpower driven. Um, and so you're, you're going to want that resource to, to sort of be full up rather than sort of, uh, you know, on its last legs. Um, so I definitely felt like there was, there was a bit of that. I felt like there was enough renown to go around that I wasn't just leveling sort of my top three characters. And then everyone else was just sort of brought along just to be like bodies in the ranks. Um, <laughs> so I think like in terms of the, the strategic aspect of this game, it ended up working a lot better uh, for, you know, because of these tweaks. And that actually is really sort of heartening. Uh, and because I didn't think it could be fixed. Like I played Banner Saga 1 and I was like, okay, this was an interesting idea, but like making everything tied to this one resource destroys this this narrative strategic layer uh it just it doesn't work because of this um here it might be a bit of a crude fix you know just sort of sprinkling you know just upping the uh the the, the rate at which you get renown uh but it, but it's the difference that makes all the difference yeah and one thing that i find because you're saying it allowed you to let yourself play the characters that you aren't as familiar with. I think it's it's super important to do that because one of the things it introduces is this idea of like synergy between different classes. There are these um, in, in both Bulwark and uh, Rook's camps. There is a dude who will teach you kind of special uh, tactics in battle. Basically, he'll he'll usually teach you an ability and then give you a sort of challenge. Uh, and you have like a list of things you have to do uh, in these challenge battles. Um, they're they're kind of like oh I don't like doing these challenges. I've got actual meaningful battles to to do over there. But they do actually teach you some interesting tactics, and a lot of these uh, classes can pull off some really cool things. And it might be quite simple. For instance, you can set with archers. You can set like traps. Uh, on the on on specific squares, and then with uh, like shield bearing Varl, you can ram people. So you can basically set up these traps and then literally force enemies into them, doing a lot of damage, keeping them locked down, and then you can just pummel them. So it might be something as simple as that, but being actually told, oh yeah, you could do this, is quite helpful. Uh, because there's there's nothing really teaching you how to fight beyond the very basic principles of combat. It's all about experimenting, and that just gives you this nudge in the right direction to actually pick maybe a, a character. Like I think you mentioned the bard Rob that you you weren't really yeah. that keen on. He has a bunch of crazy moves that uh, he's like a support character, but he can set things up to really empower your other characters and be can become like an actually really effective member of your warband. Uh, but if you were worried about all these resources and stuff like that, um, 
and you're like, oh, he's got low morale, so he might die really easily, so I'm just going to bring in someone I know how to use, you would miss out, like, one of the most, like, interesting and exotic of the characters. Yeah, the uh, I definitely did sort of, like, make nice with the bard, and I realized that he could turn your weakest characters, your most, most bled-out characters, into, like, just lethal killing machines. Yeah. Um, like, it's it's pretty crazy how much damage they can start to put out. Um, if it, once they're under the influence of Posey, uh, <laughs> but you know, in, in addition to that, um, despite the fact that like it's a little more generous with renown, and there's a few more ways to get resources, I also felt like, boy, this is um, the world in general feels a little more like it's on its last legs um that things are a little more desperate and the choices you make so like the first game you come to a village in most cases you'd be like all right everybody let's go we're we're fleeing from the dredge and you know people grumble like i don't know if we can really handle all these you know these new mouths to feed but really like who cares like you know you're being a good you're being a good dad caravan um you're you're just rescuing everybody and since the food thing doesn't really matter like it'll it'll all work out um here it definitely feels a little bit more like the world's gone to hell everyone is just like trying to scrape by and the choices are getting a little bit harder and i think like one thing that jumped out at me um it was it was an encounter early with Bolverick's band uh, i ended up basically massacring a village and i didn't really hesitate to attack that village like you come across this barricaded <laughs> village and they've clearly been killing passersby you know what i mean like these are like to a degree they've gone so like survivalist that they're just like mowing people down and so without even second thought like you know i, I fan out an attack um and i started to feel really icky uh in the battle itself because like you're bringing in all these like hero characters and you're basically massacring a couple archers and spearmen who look exactly like the units you've been using uh, in, in, in Rook's caravan. And so it immediately felt like, oh, shit, like this is, this is not a fight. Like I'm just like <laughs> mowing these people down. Uh, and then I had a decision at the end to maybe figure out a way to, uh, you know, how to handle these people, you know, in the wake of their defeat. And I thought I could, I thought I could split the baby and ended up basically having to commit a war crime. Uh, and I kind of liked it because it was such a <laughs> it was such a lousy situation and it was such a an appropriate outcome for sort of the pressures that my mercenary band was under, but also what these people would do that like it 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 was a very good sort of choose your own adventure moment where it feels like the way things work out makes a lot of sense with both the character and the situation they find themselves in, which I didn't always find the case to, in, in the Banner Saga. Like in the Banner Saga one, sometimes it felt like stuff would just happen and you didn't have a ton of control over it. And I, I didn't mind that, but sometimes it just felt very, um, very random, sort of more of a Nelson laugh, like, ha ha, you're screwed. Uh, kind of thing in Banner Saga 2 things will happen that you didn't foresee but boy a lot of times it, it, it feels like it's coming from an appropriate place because like you know for a fact that there were no good options there you know what I mean it's not like you made an innocuous choice and somehow like somebody dies because of it it's 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 more like you knew something was dangerous and you knew it was an iffy situation you made the best call you could you really didn't think it was going to end in that kind of tragedy but that's the world you're in now I, I find it really difficult to make, and, and in the best possible way, to make choices as Rook in particular. Because by the start of the the start of the game, Rook is clinically depressed. Basically, <laughs> he is like hardly able to really do anything other than fight. Um, in, indeed, fighting is kind of almost like his happy place, where he can forget about the tragedies of the past. And this is like awful because rook is this like nice like fatherly guy who's always been protecting people and he cares deeply about everyone 
but now he's this like lost soul uh kind of drenched in like dread blood uh just kind of battle like screaming in battle and then probably crying himself to sleep and it's really horrible so when you're faced with other desperate people who've lost just as much if not more than him and they're asking for help and you're like well you can help them but how do you know they're not going to like slit your throats in the middle of the night and run off with all your food or screw you over or worse like some of the choices that you have to make could even if in a fork in the fork in the road could lead to actual characters properly dying um it's almost debilitating. Like, I find myself kind of just hovering over the options. Um, and it is a lot like depression, where you're just, you're not able to choose because of fear of the outcome and also this sort of um, struggle to empathize with the situation. So you kind of feel like dead inside and you're like, well, someone's going to die either way. And it's really, really horrible. Uh, and I felt that comes across really well. Uh, they really emphasized how bleak Rook's situation was. I wonder how many people. All right, so this is getting very end of Banner Saga one spoilery, but you know it's been two years and it's kind of an important <laughs> thing to to tackle in this game. Um, this game could be about another character. Uh, it could be about Rook's daughter Alette. I really wonder what kind of game that is. Like, I really need to go back and like try it as as Alette, uh, because. I think the first game laid one of the the meanest but also most effective traps uh, for you with regard to Rook's daughter, and I think I think most people walked into it uh, yeah. because at toward the end of the game, Rook's been protective and a little bit overbearing, and uh, at times that has led him to be a little bit controlling and distrustful of his daughter's abilities. And at the end of the game, you have a very stark choice, like, do you trust her with the most important thing in the game? Like, do you have enough regard for your daughter and her ability to make her own decisions and her skills to trust her to do a thing? And this whole time, all the other characters would be like, you should trust her more. You should totally, it's going to be fine. She's great. Yeah. She'll she'll be able to do whatever she wants because she's a fantastic young lady. Yeah, and you know, so of course, and, and also like, I think we're, we're generally feminists on this show, and I, so I think of course it's going to be like, you know, it's time to let the bird leave the nest. Of, of course you can take the most important shot, honey. Here, have the enchanted arrow. And it turns into a complete tragedy. Um, <laughs> and it's a beautiful ending to the game. I think the ending Banner Saga 1 is is gorgeous and and affecting and heartrending uh but it does mean i just really wonder how this game looks when you don't have an enraged parent uh yeah. running around for the first half of it you know because like because losing a parent is very different i imagine from losing a child it's like that's more like the natural progression of things when you lose a parent uh yeah so yeah, yeah, you kind of wonder if like Olette is able to get over it faster, or and also, see, here's another thing that's kind of interesting. So Rook is already the leader of the caravan in Banner Saga One. Yeah. Um. So it's kind of natural that even though he is this broken, <laughs> perpetually depressed man in in the sequel, it makes sense he's still leading the caravan. Olette is a teenage girl now, a badass archer, uh, yeah. for sure. But she was not, she's not a leader. So it would be interesting to see how she ascends to this leadership position. Seeing as that the Banner Saga 2 takes place like right after. Um, it's not like a year has passed, a lot has changed. It is like next day um, sort of thing. So yeah, I wonder how that would work. But it would involve going through the first and the second game again. Yeah. Although, actually, I think maybe... You can make sure. a choice at the first, you, at the start of the Banner Saga 2. Right, if you're not importing your save, okay. Yeah, um, which is probably how I'll handle it uh, next time around, because obviously, like, playing through Banner Saga 1, uh, I don't need to do that again for a little while. But I, I do think it's just an interesting... Like, this is a... This, it, yeah, there's such different characters in such different places. Like, uh, Rook is very much, uh, like, the man in the road. 
you know, just it's his world is like, yes, he's the leader of this band uh, to an extent, but really his world is narrowed to this one focal point, uh, which is I need to keep my daughter safe. And he'll do a lot of things to sort of help other people. Like he's a good guy. But when push comes to shove, he has this really like tribal familial loyalty. Uh, and Alette, I think, represents more like civilization. You know what I mean? Like actual, like, no, yeah. we are all in this together. Like you can't. Because like, Rook is a man from the woods. He basically was hiding out in the woods in this little village away from civilization, whereas Alette wants to explore and go out and see new things. Right. And she's still like, no, traditional right and wrong still apply. Like you try <laughs> to help people in need. And it's an interesting, I, I just really wonder how this game looks uh, with, with, with her sort of, yeah, at the helm. And yes, her, like, how would her rise to leadership? Uh, end up end up playing out because uh, it's a real rogues gallery that Rook's collected by the uh, by the end of Banner Saga one, um, but I I really liked the degree to which it did feel like Rook has been fundamentally altered um, that the character is ha- finding it harder and harder to care and to empathize. Um, and the fact that a lot of the characters who were were it's it's really interesting to see like how many characters from the first game who were kind of the um they they you know they were hard characters right they were hard cases tough people um tended to be a little unsentimental a little ruthless to have that situation flipped in this game where suddenly some of the biggest badasses in the game who were some of the biggest like killers and everything are like going to Rook like man you need to like you're you're going a little little far with this. Like maybe you should lighten up and maybe try to be nicer. And and Rook's like, I just don't care anymore. <laughs> it's it's really good. It's it's really effective, uh, and it really colors a lot of the choices that that are to come. I think it's quite bold of of Stoic to um, have these two distinct paths based on either what you choose in the beginning or what happened in the first game. Uh, because, you know, this is still kind of an, uh, an independent studio. Um, and having effectively kind of like two completely different paths with completely different characters, completely different dialogue, writing, and experiences, and then the way that other people react to them uh, will be largely different. I think that's a very bold choice. Um, but it makes sense in a game that is all about meaningful choices uh, and like actual consequences that aren't just a bit of story flavor, but things that will affect the entirety of the game going forward. Uh, I think it's. Um, I wouldn't want to have been in their position, be like we are cutting off like <coughs> a whole part of the game for people. But I think it's really effective. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I mean, man, it, when the time comes to make Banner Saga three, I would I would feel completely hosed in their position. <laughs> I'd be like, like there's gotta be like a a story flowchart or something like that, where it's like, okay, so if oh man, like how, how many how many characters may or may not be alive? Because um, they kill a lot of people, and I think this is like because th- this is maybe why they have so many characters in the game is because they actually start killing a lot of them off and it gets a bit George R. R. Martin uh, for a while. I, I think I think in the first game I maybe like lost one character properly, uh, maybe two. Uh, in I can't even count how many people died in the Banner Saga too. Sometimes it would just be like, I'd tell someone to go and talk to someone and they'd never return. They would just be killed off. Yeah, it sets that expectation early. Like you'll meet people in the story; they're never real characters, but they're named characters in the text. And then you'll be like, "Do this thing," and somebody dies, and you're like, "Oh, okay." And then, if, and then you actually end up being able to lose like actual proper story yeah. characters uh, who have, and not just people who maybe have two scenes, but who are almost like in an advisor role. So they might not be nice people that you want to advise you and stuff, but they will crop up a lot, and you, with one single choice, can uh, end their life. Uh, not always uh, part of the plan, but it can happen anyway. And these might these aren't just people who are important to the story. These are people who you have maybe been bringing into fights as well. 
uh, and it, it's it has a massive impact and it can make you really nervous to make these calls but you're the leader you have to so i, I think it simulates what it's like being a leader of this kind of this either a band of mercenaries or these struggling survivors because you never want to make these decisions because they are horrible and you sort of really do realize that you can lose a vast way of people just with one tiny mistake you know i, I think there's I think with the with the banner saga, it's interesting because I think with the first game, I was a little concerned that like the systems weren't really there enough to reward a ton of playthroughs, um, and I questioned whether that narrative would stay fresh. And now I think I've I've, I've sort of done a one eighty. Like for me, the 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 strategy and the tactical game are just interesting enough, and they add just enough pressure uh, to make it fun to keep sort of revisiting the story but i think what where i've ended up with the series to an extent uh especially as we talk about it i played through the banner saga to uh played through the banner saga uh one uh, effectively twice um and my second playthrough is very different um it changed in some really unexpected ways uh two i'm really excited to sort of tackle it again uh just starting with a let for starters uh, just to just to see how that that game changes, but where I think I've ended up with it is um, what really interests me, and this is maybe a little bit distinctive from Bioware games. With with Bioware games, sometimes it feels like you have sort of your canonical story. You know what I mean? Like you make your choices; they're permanent, and that's your story. Like everything beyond that is, uh, you know, you can see how things were a little bit different, but. I think, like, when I think of Mass Effect, it's like I had my playthrough, and there's this other stuff that could have happened, but, like, I'm not really that interested in going back and seeing all those possibilities uh, because I, I I had my playthrough. And so I played the series, like, three times. So okay. very different. <laughs> uh, but where, where I'm at with the Banner Saga, at least, is it's sort of like... Um, where I've ended up with a lot of Twine games, where what really interests me is sort of seeing all the possibilities that contained within those sort of forking narrative moments, right? Like, yeah. for me, increasingly, I sort of view the entire game as it's not just the choices you make in your first playthrough. There's some sort of canonical story. It's, like, the, the real thing that interests me increasingly is, like, all the ways this is sort of knit together and the ways the world and the characters are sort of fleshed out based on these ways the story could have gone. Uh, I, I find that sort of increasingly compelling uh, to, to sort of look at the look at the ways this, this could have gone differently. Um, and for me, that's increasingly... So like that That's kind of the game, right? It isn't just like this one linear journey uh, you make some choices along the way. Uh, for me, it's sort of seeing the inflection points and what's revealed about characters and who they have the potential to be based on these choices you make. It's a, it's a game that I would actually really love to peek behind the curtain uh, and see the flowcharts and actually get into the nitty-gritty of how certain decisions affect different characters and how some characters surviving can actually have this big impact of the game that you never even imagined. Um, I'd I, I like to experience it more, but I, it, I'm, I am fascinated by all of these different kind of paths that you can take. Um, whereas I, I, with a lot of these choice-based games, I want to uh, keep the illusion of, uh, of choice because often mm -hmm. they, they don't have real meaningful consequences, but, I, but they feel like they do, and I want to keep that illusion intact. But I, I actually want with the Banner Saga 2, I want to dig into it because it is so interesting how many tiny little decisions you have to make and how they build up into this one epic adventure. Uh, so, you know, as we, as we wind this down, um, like, I think at the end of the first game, I was worried the series was going to be a novelty that I wondered whether, like, the next Banner Saga game would be as interesting. And it definitely feel like there was less hype around this one. I didn't hear as many people talking about it, is, is how it felt. Uh, which is unfortunate, because I feel like with the Banner Saga 2, the series is really coming into its own. And it's, like, increasingly clear there's something really special here. 
Oh, definitely. I, I think a lot of the uh, issues with a lack of uh, excitement or people talking about it was because the, the first game you had, I think there was like a successful Kickstarter. There was Banner Saga Factions, which was just the tactical combat. It was like a sort of preview of what's to come. Uh, so there was a lot of more chatter around it because there was a lot more going on, whereas this is just uh, this is just the sequel. Um, I think that maybe muted a little bit of that. Uh, but yeah, it's so it's such a vast improvement. Uh, it definitely it's picked up speed rather than losing any steam. All right, so that will do it for our discussion of the Banner Saga Two. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is produced as always by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com/threema. Uh, finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. Uh, if you've been enjoying our show, please consider contributing at patreon.com slash 3MA and rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of 3MA. Until then, uh, for Fraser Brown, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. <laughs>